Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hits. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. The very first words of this passage set the scene for us. They tell us what this very big book contains. Verse 1 says it contains the vision of Isaiah son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it's very specific. And we're told this vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem came in a very specific time period during the reigns of these four kings of Judah. Now, during the time that these kings were reigning, the two superpowers in the world were uh, initially Assyria, when Isaiah began his ministry, in the year that King Uzziah died, he tells us in chapter 6. But later, Babylon emerged as the dominant force in the world. And compared to Assyria and Babylon, Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, was a pretty obscure place. Certainly in terms of world politics, Jerusalem in Judah was a backwater. The rest of the world didn't take much notice of Jerusalem in Judah. And we might wonder why we should take notice today. But look at the beginning of verse 2. Isaiah says... Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth is a way of referring to all creation. So what we have in this big book is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which all creation needs to hear. That's in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem which all creation needs to hear. This vision has significance for all creation. God's dealings with Judah and Jerusalem will impact all creation. And the opening verse of this book tells us also who it is that's delivering this vision to us. It is Isaiah, son of Amos. But who gave him the vision? Well, God, yes. But how does this God choose to describe himself? In the course of this long book, he will be described in many different ways. He's the creator, he's the judge, he is a warrior, he's the king, he's the savior, he's a shepherd. He's all of those things. But here, right at the beginning, how does he describe himself? As the father. In verse 2, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Of all the portraits God will give us of himself in this big, big book, the one he wants us to see first is that he is the Father. Apparently this is the foundation of all the other portraits. And what kind of father do we meet here in this book? We have to ask that. Because there are all kinds of fathers in this world. There are distant fathers. There are careless fathers. And there are involved fathers and devoted fathers. What kind of father is God? Well, in the middle of verse 2 down to verse 9, we learn he is the father who mourns 
a broken relationship and its bitter consequences. He's the father who mourns a broken relationship and its bitter consequences. We learn straight away here, God is not the one who has broken this relationship. The children have broken it. So who are these children who God reared and brought up? It's the people of Israel. God says that in verse 3. The descendants of Abraham. The book of Genesis describes how God appeared to Abraham and made great promises to Abraham. Promises about his descendants that they would be God's people. And ever since that day, God was a wonderfully attentive parent. He rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He brought them eventually into the land of Canaan, which he gave them as a gift. And God watched over the establishment of Israel as a kingdom. All that history is recorded in the Old Testament. For many generations, the Israelites have been growing children. And God has been the loving, attentive parent. But the children have rebelled. And they've rebelled not just in isolated instances. They have rebelled as a settled way of life. They have deliberately distanced themselves from God's wisdom and God's authority. You can hear the poignancy in God's words. You can hear the emotion as he describes that in the middle of verse 2. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The sense of that is, even the ox and the donkey know who it is who cares for them. But my children don't. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The Holy One of Israel is one of the most significant titles for God used in the book of Isaiah. It occurs throughout the book. And it's a title that captures both the transcendence and the intimacy of God. He's the Holy One. He's transcendent. He's utterly above all. And he's the Holy One of Israel. The transcendent one who adopted Israel as his children. He joined himself to them in an intimate relationship. That is the father Israel has forsaken. That's the one they've turned their backs on. The foolishness of it. The corruption of it. To be so blessed. To be loved with divine love. And yet to forsake the Father who loved and blessed them. The Father mourns that broken relationship. And he mourns also the bitter consequences of it. The bitter fruits of Israel's rebellion. You can see that in verses 5 and 6. Describing Israel like a badly beaten and wounded body. In verses 7 to 9, point to what that actually looks like. Your country is desolate, your city is burned with fire. Now that may be a reference to what happened to the northern part of Israel. As you know, probably long before this, the kingdom of Israel had split in two. 
And so a northern kingdom called Samaria, or sometimes Ephraim, or sometimes just Israel, which can be a bit confusing since it was only part of Israel. And then there was also the southern kingdom called Judah. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom was devastated by the Assyrians. So half of rebellious Israel was really gone at that point. And that may be what God is talking about here. Or he may be talking about one of the lesser attacks Judas suffered around the same time. But in any case, the point being made is, Israel's rebellion against God their father has not turned out well. The results have been bitter for them. Their father has not shielded them from the consequences of their choices. They've turned their backs on their father's care. They spurned his wisdom and authority. And the results have been deeply unpleasant. Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, is still standing. But it is in a precarious state. You can see that down in verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom, become like Gomorrah. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And what we're being told is while she is still standing, she's more like a rickety shack in a vegetable patch then she is like a glorious walled city. And that's a bad way to be when your enemies are casting their eye over you. And verse 9 says, in fact, it's only down to God's grace that Jerusalem has made it this far. By rights, she deserves the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's incredible. Those two cities were notorious throughout the Old Testament for their wickedness. And their wickedness was removed from the earth when God rained down burning sulfur on them. Genesis chapter 19. God hasn't done that to Jerusalem yet. But it's not because they deserve better. In verse 9, God actually refers to the rulers and the people of Jerusalem as the rulers and people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jerusalem's wickedness is on the same level as those two cities that are now long gone. Turning their backs on God their Father has not been going well for Israel. And it has not been going well for the human race. Now there are certainly ways in which Old Testament Israel was unique. But in other ways, Israel was a microcosm of humanity. Israel's rebellion against her loving, attentive father mirrors humanity's rebellion. It's a miniature version of it. Read the opening chapters of Genesis and see God's incredible care for the first man and woman. His work of creation centered on the man and woman. They were the jewel of his creation. And nothing was too good for God to provide for them. Read those chapters and you see a father pouring out his love on the man and woman. Nurturing them, blessing them in all sorts of ways. Setting them up for prosperity. 
And for every success. And what was the result of that? Well, you know the result. They spurned God's care. They turned their backs on His wisdom and authority. And the consequences have been bitter ever since. Each new generation has continued the corruption of its ancestors. And it's only by God's grace we haven't all been removed from the earth like Sodom and Gomorrah. This vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem is one we all need to hear. And as we hear it today, we mustn't make the mistake the people of Judah and Jerusalem were making. Because they thought they had a solution to the bitterness and the vulnerability of their situation. But their solution was a non-solution. We hear about it in verses 10 to 15. The non-solution of religion that is heartless, not relational. The non-solution of religion that is heartless, not relational. God, the attentive parent, is looking for a relationship with his children. But what he's getting is thoughtless rituals. Token gestures that might involve a reasonable amount of expense, actually, They might look impressive, but they are not expressions of the heart. They're just attempts to placate God, to throw God a bone, while the people go on spurning Him in their hearts and their lives. Look at that again in verse 11. God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts My soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, if we are at all familiar with the Old Testament, these verses should cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. Because we know it was God himself who set up these sacrifices and burnt offerings. It was God himself who asked for the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. It was God himself who arranged Israel's calendar round Sabbath's feasts and festivals. It was all carefully set out in the book of Exodus through to Numbers. So what is all this? Why does God say he cannot bear it when the Israelites do what they were commanded to do? In fact, he goes as far as to say, I hate what you're doing with all my being. My soul hates it. It's incredibly strong language. So what are we to make of it? Well, the fact is, all the rituals that God gave Israel were never intended to be just rituals. They were ways 
for sincere worshippers to approach God. The rituals were ways for people to express the devotion of their hearts. They were never intended as ways to throw God a bone and placate Him while you live the rest of your life as if He didn't exist. That is not what the sacrifices and feasts were for. And when it's all treated as a way to buy God off with a bull or a goat slaughtered on the altar, then it all becomes meaningless. Ridiculous even. As if God wanted fattened animals in their blood. What value does that have for God? When those things are given as an overflow of the heart, when they're given as expressions of genuine sorrow over sin and genuine love, when they come from children who delight in their father and want to be close to him, then the sacrifices and festivals have significance. Otherwise, it's just a lot of fat and blood. And dates on the calendar. I think we can understand this if we think about a situation that is somewhat parallel to this. Think of a husband who buys his wife an expensive bouquet of flowers every week. And... Several times a year, he buys her an exquisite piece of jewelry. Are those gifts meaningful? Well, it depends, doesn't it? If that husband's pattern of life is to respect his wife, if he speaks to her and treats her respectfully, if he looks for ways to help her out day to day, if he makes it his aim to serve and honor her, if he demonstrates daily love for his wife, then when the flowers and the jewelry arrive, that lady will know they are genuine expressions of love and devotion. They come from her husband's heart. On the other hand, if the husband ignores his wife day to day, if he's never around, or if he is around, but he speaks to her and treats her disrespectfully day after day like she's stupid like she's nothing but an irritation to him then when the flowers and the jewelry come what significance do they have none certainly if the lady cares about an actual relationship they have no significance in fact those offerings are an insult aren't they They imply the lady is so shallow that the gifts will keep her sweet. They'll cause her to put up with the disrespectful treatment. Without a daily context of love, respect and commitment, those gifts are just a lot of stems, petals and shiny stones. And the lady could quite legitimately tell the husband she hates his stems, his petals, and his shiny stones. And so it is with God our Father. He has no pleasure in religious gifts that are heartless. And the Israelites' gifts were heartless. Their heart wasn't in them. 
How do we know that? Well, look again at verse 15. At the end of the Lord's description of how he hates their sacrifices, he says in verse 15, I'm not listening to your prayers. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. In other words, you live careless lives. You're careless about me, and you're careless about what I care about. The book of Isaiah will tell us what God cares about is justice and righteousness. Doing what is right. In verse 17 he'll mention defending the oppressed. Taking up the cause of the fatherless. Pleading the case of the widow. That's a favorite list for God. Comes up again and again in the Old Testament. He cares deeply about people being treated well. He hates injustice and oppression. And here in verse 15 God says to the people of Jerusalem. You do not share my heart in that. Your hands are full of blood, meaning you have blood guilt on your hands because of how you treat others. Now at the extreme end of that spectrum, that includes murder, of course. But it includes things that stop short of actual murder. All oppression and abuse leaves us with hands full of blood. That includes turning a blind eye to evil and injustice when others are doing it. That's how the Israelites lived their lives. And that is how God knows their offerings and sacrifices are meaningless. That's how he knows their hearts are not in their worship. He knows it because they don't share his heart for the oppressed, the fatherless, and the widow. Now today we know, I think, the time when animal sacrifices could have significance That time has gone. The time for those things has gone because God's son Jesus offered himself as the once for all sacrifice. God doesn't ask us for bulls and goats. Even when our hearts are full of love for him, those animal sacrifices have no meaning anymore. He asks us to come to Jesus and rest in Jesus' sacrifice. So that part of this has changed. But the challenge here has not changed at all. The Israelites couldn't hide behind their sacrifices if their hearts were far from God. They did not share His heart. And today, you and I can't hide behind Jesus' sacrifice if our hearts are far from God. If we don't share His heart... Jesus is not a magic word that throws a bone to God and gets him off our back so we can live our lives the rest of the week as if he doesn't exist. The words, Jesus is my Savior, can be just as meaningless as the Israelites' animal sacrifices. If we use the words, Jesus is my Savior, to try and distract God from our lack of heart for him, and our lack of heart for others, then the words are meaningless. Please don't misunderstand me. Jesus is the only Savior. He's our only hope. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But when we come to Him, we have to come with our heart. We give our lives to God, not just our words. 
One writer makes this point in a very sobering way, I think. He says, Let us never use religious words when we do not mean them. If we speak admiringly about discipleship, but resist its demands at the same time, it will harm our soul and our inner life. So let us be reserved with religious terms and expressions of faith. Using them without meaning them will destroy us. And our hypocrisy will be especially disastrous for our children. Words are important. They're very important. But religious words that don't come from the heart do not restore our relationship with God. What we need is what God shows us in verses 16 to 20. The only solution is renewed relationship through inner washing and changed lives. The only solution is renewed relationship through inner washing and changed lives. It's significant that after a long explanation of why the Israelites' religion is unacceptable to him, God doesn't leave it there. He's still the attentive father. And he offers a way forward. Look at that again in verse 16. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Notice what comes first in that. Wash and make yourselves clean. Now the Old Testament law contained regulations for ceremonial washing. But considering all that God has just said in the previous verses, we know he is not talking here about external rituals. He's talking about washing the heart. We'll see that in a moment. And then, after the washing, comes the changed life. A life that begins to reflect God's own heart for justice. And then in verse 18, God explains the washing he has in mind. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Scarlet and crimson were very strong dyes in the ancient world. They were very strong dyes that did not wash out. They're also the colors of blood guilt. The blood guilt that God has said is dripping from the hands of these Israelites. The blood guilt that honestly drips from all of our hands. Because along with these Israelites, we are stained deep with the guilt of our sin. We cannot wash it away. It's deeper in than any dye. But God offers a washing that deals with even the deepest stains of sin. He invites us to come and have our crimson stains turned white as snow. But you'll notice here, there's no explanation of how God will perform this washing. That explanation will come much later on in the book. 
Later in the book of Isaiah, we hear about a servant who will heal us by his wounds. His blood will wash away the blood guilt of those who come to God. And the New Testament explains that servant is Jesus. Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb who poured out his blood on the cross. So we could be cleansed right to the core. Jesus is the one we come to for God's washing. But how are we supposed to come? We've already seen we don't come with words we don't mean. As if the words, Jesus is my Savior, are magic words. Well, God helps us here in verse 19. He says we are to come willingly. Admitting how deeply stained we are. Agreeing with God that we are rebels who have turned our backs on Him. We come agreeing that we deserve to be forsaken by God as we have forsaken Him. And we come, verse 19 says, ready to be obedient. Ready to give our lives to God. Not hoping we can say some magic words and then go on living as we did before. We come ready to live as God's obedient children. Children who want to reflect our Father's character. We come like that and God promises us washing. He promises us cleansing. He offers us a blessed future. You can see that in verse 19 also. You shall eat the good of the land. As if we were to read on, we'd find this book has much more to say about the blessed future God has for his children. But just for now, right at the beginning, we're told the future will be blessed for his children. He is a loving, attentive parent. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And verse 20 reminds us we desperately need him. If you refuse and rebel, you shall not eat the good of the land, you shall be eaten by the sword. There is only one way to life. One way to be restored to the Father. If we reject it, we will not have life. So these words call us to choose, and they are a message of hope for us. I hope you can see that. These words come to a people who are given to corruption, living in a land that is desolate, And these words are for cleansing and life. Life with God. In relationship with the Father. I don't know all of you. It could be that some of you don't know Him as your Father yet. These words are an invitation to come to Him. And if you are a Christian, these words are a reminder of who your God is. He is your loving, attentive Father. He has provided the cleansing you desperately needed. And He welcomes you as His dearly loved child. So let's not be satisfied with just saying words about God. Let's not be satisfied even with saying words to God. Let's come with our hearts and lives as well as our words.